Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report. First, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You wanted to talk about something in the compliance or compliance-related field, but really had no idea how to get started? Take a listen from our sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. This is part two of a special two-part episode with James Kukios, partner at Morrison and Forrester. We're taking a look at the firm's top 10 international anti-corruption developments newsletter for February. We take a look at the civil forfeiture action filed in connection with the 1MDB scandal, the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals vacating a federal whistleblower retaliation against BioRad. We consider uh, the implications of the UK serious fraud office closing two significant bribery matters of the Rolls-Royce case and GSK, at least as it uh, related to individuals. And then uh, in a special uh, segment, James discusses the opinion release procedure under the FCPA, how can a company use it, and what happens on the DOJ side once one comes in. I know you will find it useful and something that you will enjoy as well. If you want to have information on the firm's January newsletter, take a listen to last week's episode. Finally, the FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. James, if we could uh, now turn to the February um, <clears throat> report, the top 10 international anti-corruption developments for February 2019 by Morrison and Forster. I wanted to start with uh, an, one of the notations around the Department of Justice's $38 million civil forfeiture action in connection with uh, the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund, 1MDB, and really not particularly focusing on this civil forfeiture action, but to really garner an understanding from you how civil forfeiture is a part of the arsenal of the Department of Justice in the fight in bribery and corruption, and how that unit would interplay with the FCPA unit or the broader fraud unit. Sure. So just a, a little orientation. You're right. This is a um, $38 million civil forfeiture action brought by DOJ's money laundering and asset recovery section um, again, um, as part of the 1MDB scandal. Uh, just for a little context, we've we've actually covered this story um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, at least eight other times that are in our top tens because it's just a such a huge international foreign bribery development. And with this um, civil forfeiture action combined with the earlier ones, this is now the um, largest forfeiture action ever brought in this area. So it's uh, it's a pretty big deal. Long story short is. Um, the fraud section of the criminal division of the Department of Justice uh, focuses on criminal enforcement of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. The money laundering and asset recovery section uh, focuses on trying to locate kleptocracy proceeds that are subject to U.S. jurisdiction. In other words, money that um, kleptocrats or uh, corrupt foreign officials have obtained through bribery schemes and either invested in the United States 
purchase things in the United States or had funds passed through the United States to purchase things um, or invest in things outside of the United States. So, for example, in this case, this particular forfeiture action, uh, we had things like um, real estate in New York, uh, uh, equity in a company headquartered in Kentucky, but also asked luxury real estate in London. Again, back getting back to the uh, you, London is an attractive location for um, kleptocracy proceeds, but the transactions went through the United States financial system before that the real estate was purchased. So really, while the fraud section through enforcing the FCPA tends to focus on the uh, supply side of foreign bribery, because that's what the FCPA is, if, uh, a supply side uh, statute, MLARS and their kleptocracy initiative focuses on the demand side, trying to reduce the profitability of um, foreign bribery for foreign officials, and then hopefully repatriating that money to the uh, countries from which the money was stolen. So it's a nice one-two punch when you look at it from a more holistic viewpoint of focusing on both demand side and supply side. The two units do work quite closely together, not in every case. Um, oftentimes, there is not a forfeiture action um, when it comes to uh, an FCPA enforcement action for various reasons. The money may not have gone through the United States, uh, the proceeds. Um, but uh, um, oftentimes, when the MLARs, used to be called AFMILs, MLARs and the fraud section are in the same building. They're just a floor apart. Um, the prosecutors know each other very well, uh, and they often work together on these cases. Uh, for example, the um, for a long time, the uh, the Karamova case, um, which involves a lot of asset forfeiture, but also an FCP enforcement action, the two sections were working very closely together. Um, so really, they work very well together to coordinate on um, pursuing foreign bribery cases from from many different angles. So the uh, that was the other case I wanted to raise with you, James, because uh, in the Karanova case, Karamova case, we had the forfeiture actions really as early as around the time of the first FCPA enforcement action involving telecom licenses in Uzbekistan, uh, and certainly carrying forward up until the MTS settlement uh, earlier this this spring. But in the one MDB case, we had the civil forfeiture actions filed uh, really long before. Uh, time-wise, the FCPA or any FCPA action was filed. So it, it seems to me that this is a can be a pretty strong tool in the government's arsenal. Definitely, definitely. Uh, James, next up, we had uh, I thought a, a really interesting um, whistleblower case uh, out of California. It involved uh, BioRad and. What was interesting about it, probably the most interesting thing, was it involved the general counsel. Uh, yes. Now, former general counsel of the company. I followed this case uh, quite closely, and uh, I don't know if this translates into uh, the criminal side of things, but on the civil side in Texas, we said that bad facts um, can sometimes make bad law. And in this case, we had a very bad set of facts and um, around the, the whistleblower. And he went to trial, won a very large award, and had part of that award vacated. And I was just kind of wondering uh, what your thoughts were around the law and uh, more specifically what the Ninth Circuit held. Yes. Th so this has been a, a case that we've been following pretty closely for a number of years because of the potential implications of having um, you know, cor corporate insiders turn whistleblower. 
which is especially problematic. And this is probably one of the things you're alluding to, Tom, when that insider is the receiver of privileged information like a general counsel. So this has been a very um, interesting case to follow. Uh, in summary, the um, the general former general counsel Biorad here um, received some reports that he thought likely um, constituted FCPA violations, and he wasn't very happy with. Uh, I'm probably oversimplifying, but he wasn't very happy with the company's response to that. So he turned whistleblower and reported to the SEC that um, that he thought there were FCPA violations. Uh, there's a lot of pre- pre-trial maneuvering back and forth, finally did go to, to trial. And as you said, there's a large verdict in the general, former general counsel's favor. Um, the vacation of the verdict is, is really kind of on a, a very technical ground. The, the district court had instructed the jury that um, the, that the statutory provisions of the FCPA constitute rules or regulations of the FC, SEC for purposes of determining whether Wadler engaged in protected activity under SOX. What the Ninth Circuit said was, no, a statute, the, the statutory language cannot be considered rules or regulations. Uh, and so therefore that was an improper jury instruction. However, <laughs> the uh, Ninth Circuit went on to hold but there is a regulation that essentially mirrors the FCPA's internal controls, um, I'm sorry, books and records provisions. And therefore, the jury probably could have found, if properly instructed, that uh, the report fell within that rule and regulation. And so we're not going to vac- we're, we're going to vacate the verdict, but we're going to um, remand it to the district court so the district court can determine whether there should be a new trial on these facts. Uh, in other words, it kind of seems like BioRad won a technical um, had a technical win here, but the Ninth Circuit was sending a pretty strong message that it was just a technical um, victory because the facts would have satisfied the proper jury instructions as well. So I think, um, long story short, the the biggest thing that we always see in these whistleblower cases is it's really important for a company to, to try to, as much as possible and appropriately, have insiders report concerns and address concerns inside the company before going to the SEC. Um, obviously, you can't retaliate. Obviously, you can't um, uh, prohibit people from going to the SEC, uh, and there were a lot of resolutions about that in the last couple of years. Uh, but it's really important for companies to try to provide the internal incentives appropriately um, for for insiders to to keep their reports inside. Um, and the BioRad, the the wet, wad, Wadler versus BioRad decision underscores the fact that you know if these insiders go out go to the SEC. And they get retaliated against, they can um, earn a lot of money through the retaliation provisions. James, um, I feel like the BioRed case stands for the proposition, certainly in the Ninth Circuit, but frankly, literally across the country now, that a general counsel can be a protected whistleblower uh, if they meet the definition that the Supreme Court has articulated under Sarbanes-Oxley. Does that, is that question still open in your mind? No, I don't think so. And that can be particularly problematic for for companies 
um, dealing with privileged information and, and things. So I think you're right. So James, next we had a, a announcement from the UK Serious Fraud Office that, that frankly disheartened me uh, quite a bit and I think left many people with their head scratching. So I've wanted to ask you because uh, not only do I think probably um, uh, give a better insight or at least uh, from the rational uh, considerations prosecutors have to make, but also really um, the uh, when sometimes prosecutors just are ready uh, for whatever reason to, to move on from a case. So we had the UK Serious Fraud Office announced they were closing investigations into individuals involved in both the Rolls-Royce and GlaxoSmithKline case. Um, what were your thoughts along on uh, that matter? You know, my my thoughts, and, and this is based just kind of on my experience at DOJ and, and, and gleaning from the press release from the SFO, what might have been going on. It's not uncommon when a new leader of any organization comes in, whether it's the new criminal division chief at DOJ or a new FBI director, or in this case, the new SFO director, to go back look at cases that have been sitting along for, around for a long time that are getting stale, that have taken up a lot of resources and kind of take a fresh look and make a decision about whether we're just going to have a clean break from these and get them off our docket, or we're going to push them towards final resolution. And what I see here is the SFO director likely took her first couple of months to do exactly that. Take a look at these very old cases determine whether these were actually things that um, she wanted to go forward on or whether it would be better served for her to, to get these off her books and focus on new cases. My guess is the fact that these have sat around for so long is that there are probably evidentiary issues. There may have been statute of limitations issues, and she just made the cost-benefit analysis uh, that it's time to move on from these. Now, my reading is reinforced, I think, as I mentioned, by a couple notes in the press release. Um, most directly to these two cases, the press release says that the, that the SFO director found insufficient evidence to provide realistic prospect of conviction. Uh, in other words, they didn't think they'd win these cases if they went forward. And that's certainly a reason to move on from a case instead of investing more resources it, in it. Or she determined that it was not in the public interest to bring prosecutions. And that could be you know, some there are there's already corporate resolution and somebody charged, so it's time to just move on from that. And then what I found really interesting was in the in the sub notes, the press release said that there had also been a number of non-public declinations since um, the SF, new SFO director took office, which again reinforces my thought that you know the SFO director asked her staff, brief me on all our old cases. And let's decide which ones we're going to pursue and which ones we're just going to get a fresh break. When you have a new director, a new leader in an organization, it gives your organization that opportunity to take a fresh look and move on from cases that, that may be too difficult to pursue. So that would be my non-disappointed version, Tom. I know you're disappointed in it, so, but uh, that, that would be my organizational take on what may have happened at the SFO. 
No, and that's really why I wanted to present this to a, a former prosecutor, former DOJ, because there are considerations, uh, prosecutorial discretion, evidentiary considerations, and, and frankly, as you just articulated, a cost-benefit analysis. And those are all parts of, of what I would presume that the DOJ would go through on a regular basis on every case. So having that uh, with a new director coming in with very old cases, even if they're very high profile, I think is a it's a really good explanation and helps people understand uh, why something that may seemingly be a head scratcher may actually be a part of a very long, thoughtful process. That's what I would hope so. And that's what I would expect with uh, Ms. Wasowski's background um, in, in uh, both FBI, DOJ, and now the SFO. James, I wanted to end with a few minutes uh, going in a little bit different direction. I'm doing an um, ongoing series on opinion releases and trying to, to give the compliance practitioner a little insight into what uh, they have said over the years. And a question keeps coming up from many of my listeners. Uh, how do you actually utilize the opinion release procedure? And what's what does the DOJ do when someone submits one? So I was wondering if we might be able to spend a few minutes visiting on that topic. Sure. Happy to do so, Tom. So you want to t- talk about from the uh, from when an opinion um, procedure request comes in to sort of the the ending of the process? So, yeah. So what? How does some, how does someone submit an opinion procedure uh, release procedure? Sure. So a couple things, just in terms of resources, um, the opinion procedure release concept is set out in the FCPA, and then DOJ has promulga- promulgated some regulations about how the um, process should work. And you can find all of those on the fraud section's website. So it's all set out there as well. There's also a chapter in the FCPA resource guide on this. Um, so for people who are curious on the um, steps to take, there is some public guidance from DOJ on those. But long story short is, if a company is an issuer or domestic concern, and it is determining whether it is going to um, enter into a deal, not a hypothetical deal, but an actual deal that they would um, that they want to go through with. Um, they submit to the fraud section a request that sets out the pertinent facts of the de- of the deal, uh, and then oftentimes um, may also propose some prophylactic measures to kind of proactively decide um, to to show the department that, you know, there, there are a couple concerns here and here's how we're going to react to them. Uh, DOJ gets it. It's then assigned typically to a line attorney to review. DOJ gets 30 days under the regulations to respond to the, um, to the request. Now, I think my impression is back in the, uh, in the earlier days of the FCPA, that 30 days was actually pretty um, not as difficult to meet. But when I was there, you know, we had a much more sophisticated and developed understanding of of the FCPA, not because we were smarter, but because there was a bigger body of work out there. There were more resolutions. Uh, there was a more evolved um, understanding of compliance procedures. So oftentimes what we would do is we would write back to the um, company and ask for some more information. And that restarts the clock. So if DOJ um, sends a request for further information to a company, um, they then get an additional 30 days from the response. And that can happen a couple times, depending on how complicated the the deal is. 
um, or how um, uh, detailed the response is. It tended to be if it was a relatively simple um, uh, travel case. Like, for example, we had one about um, some adoption providers who wanted to bring some foreign officials to the United States uh, to show um, the officials where the children from their countries were being adopted, the fact that they had good facilities, that they were finding good homes. There are several different, there's several prior um, travel related opinion procedure releases. The submissions typically follow those. The reasoning behind DOJ was not that complicated. We were usually able to do those within 30 days. Some of the more complex merger and acquisition deals, um, there was some unwinding of, of um, uh, investments because people were, um, uh, were not foreign officials when they first invested in a public company, but then became elected. Uh, there was one that caused us to have to determine whether a um, certain person was a member of a royal family in a, in a, a particular country. I remember that more, one. Yeah, those are more, much more complicated and required some more back and forth. But the default is 30 days. The reality is it tends to be more like 60 or 90 days. So once that happens, uh, DOJ keeps working on it in the meantime, drafting uh, the opinion, um, going back and forth. Two things can then happen when everything's ready to go and you're kind of before the, the time limit to issue the opinion. One is um, DOJ can decide that this deal is okay uh, and they'll issue a favorable opinion procedure release saying based on the facts uh, as represented by the submitter, uh, there will be a presumption of non-prosecution. It's never fully binding because if the facts are misrepresented or anything like that, um, DOJ reserves its right, but they say there's a presumption that we will not take enforcement action against the company or if it looks like the opinion procedure is going to go in a negative way, then there could be a dialogue between DOJ and the company that says, look, you know, we're not able to really find comfort in this deal. We don't think we're going to be able to issue you a clean bill of health. Um, we're happy to go forward with this. Or if you'd like to withdraw your request, uh, of course, you can do that as well. And it doesn't happen all that often. I mean, there's, there's not that many opinion procedure releases period. But usually we could kind of find common ground with the company where we'd say, you know, we're concerned about this. Can you suggest a prophylactic measure for that? Um, and, and we could usually find common ground. There were a couple of times where I was at DOJ where we were not able to do that. And so we, through dialogue with the company, signaled that and they decided to withdraw the, um, the opinion procedure request. And then um, once the opinion procedure letter is sent to uh, the company, DOJ then typically does an anonymized version of the letter and puts that on its website so it, it can serve as precedent for other companies. Very explicitly says that this is just for guidance purposes and is not binding, uh, does not bind DOJ for any other company that's reading it. It's limited to the requester. Um, but an anonymized version is put out there for, um, for public consumption. Sometimes companies don't want it to be um, anonymized. A very famous one was the Halliburton opinion procedure release, 0802, um, where Halliburton, for whatever reason, uh, was before my time, decided that they wanted um, um, their name on it and so did not ask for it to be anonymized. But that's kind of the, 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 the procedure. 
In short, it starts with a written letter from a requester. There's often some back and forth between DOJ and the requester. And then uh, an opinion procedure is typically issued. So that was a great explanation, James. Um, We have not seen too many opinion releases over the last uh, several years, but frankly, I hope that this is something that companies will uh, utilize or avail themselves of going forward. And data mining these uh, for my podcast series has been really a great learning experience because I found a lot of uh, opinion uh, procedure releases. And I would just say that um, one thing I love is what I call creative lawyering. And (laughs) I have seen a couple of opinion releases that are just fabulous examples of that, where if I had been asked the question 100 times, I would have 100 times said it was an FCPA violation, yet the company and their lawyers were able to come up with a, a sufficiently proact, uh, prophylactic solution that the DOJ uh, went the other way. So uh, I think it's a great opportunity for a lawyer to be creative, for a company to be creative. Uh, the Halliburton 0802 opinion release, I thought, was one of those very creative opinion releases. And that uh, the last point I would just like to, to raise with you is, it seems to me that the DOJ listens. Uh, they listen. Uh, they've listened uh, over the past time since you were there. They co- have continued to listen. We've obviously seen the FCPA guidance. We've seen the uh, 2016 pilot program. We've seen the 2017 corporate enforcement policy. But I think they listen in opinion releases, and they'll listen to uh, uh, rational, persuasive arguments. They may disagree, and they'll communicate those disagreements. But I've seen them uh, apparently accept creative arguments that satisfied them. And so it seems to me there's an ongoing dialogue with the department on this issue. I think that's right. I mean, I personally believe, and it was certainly true for my time at the fraud section, that the fraud section operates the best when it has that open dialogue with companies, when it realizes that a lot of companies, maybe most companies, want to do the right thing uh, when it comes down to it. And the opinion procedure um, process in many ways is a company trying to do the right thing and making sure it doesn't violate the law. So I think it, in many ways, DOJ is very open in it. The, the one problem is it's kind of an extraordinary and very unusual for criminal law um, benefit that companies can get from it. So DOJ wants to be very circumspect that they're not giving um, mistakenly this extraordinary benefit to a corrupt deal or a potentially corrupt deal. So that's why I think over the last couple of years, as I said, there's, there's been a sophistication in uh, the fraud section's understanding of compliance. The requirements have gotten harder, um, and this benefit is seen as a very big benefit. So the, the procedure process, I think, has become a little more cumbersome, and, and that's why a lot of companies, I think, don't avail themselves of it as much as they used to, although it can be an extremely helpful and beneficial process. The one thing, when you talk about creative lawyering, and Tom, it, my favorite ones are the ones where companies want to do business with a part-time legislator or a, a part-time executive branch official, which is just so fascinating, especially that even happens in the United States in the neighboring state here of Virginia, where, where legislators are only in session for like 30 or 60 days a year, and they have private lives on the side where they have to make a living. And so how do you do business with folks like that? that may even be government facing in some ways um, without running afoul of the corruption laws. And there's some really interesting uh, opinion procedure releases about ways that 
um, companies can do business with people who are, serve some kind of government function and still do so in a non-corrupt way, which I just find those are always my favorite. And uh, uh, the one you're or, or the one you alluded to earlier with the um, whether or not a, a particular individual is a royal family member and what that may have meant was one of those I referred to, and I found that extraordinarily interesting and opened my eyes to to really this continuing dialogue. Yeah, so Jason, that was a Unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I wanted to uh, thank you for this uh, fascinating uh, catch-up on uh, the January and February newsletters, and I can't wait to get to March and April. Thanks, Tom. Always a pleasure. Appreciate it. This is Tom Fox. I hope you've enjoyed this special two-part series with James Kukios, partner at Morrison & Forrester, where we've explored the firm's top 10 international anti-corruption developments for January in last week's episode and for February in this week's episode. I know you found James' thoughts on the opinion release procedure under the FCPA useful, and perhaps you might even use it going forward. I think it provides a great opportunity for what I like to call creative lawyering. I hope you'll join me again next week when I have another guest on the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.